On today's episode, we have founder and group CEO of Sound Diplomacy, Shane Shapiro. Shane has got an interesting rap sheet. He holds a PhD in cultural policy, is an accomplished speaker, having delivered the first ever TED Talk on music cities, and pioneered the model linking music to urban policy that is being replicated globally. Today, we chat about his path in the music business and how newcomers can stand out and build their network from anywhere in the world. Let's hop right in. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Let's, uh, I'm happy to answer whatever questions you have. I thought that your profile fit somebody who's really great to speak on different topics, not so much, you know, to try and break into like live music or to break into television, but you know, you have a very unique background and I think that it'd be interesting to share a little bit of insight yeah. into where you, where you see the economy of the music industry. Sure. I, I'll happily talk about it. You know, before we jump into the fact that, you know, you're obviously a clear advocate for the arts, you know, you pursued a PhD of the history of popular music funding in Canada, you founded Sound Diplomacy, you also founded the Music Cities Conference, I, I, I watched your TED Talk. I've done a lot of things. Well, I've always been very, uh, I don't know, I'm not very good working for other people in that sense, even though I work for tons of people now. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always kind of wanted to do my own thing it's manifested in um you know it's manifested this way uh but i've always worked in music since i was 14 years old so okay. i've never had any other job so i don't have any discernible skill i'm stuck <laughs> that's kind of how i see it i you know i'm not very good with my hands i you know i'm i don't have any degrees in law or accounting i'm not great at math so uh and i've always but i've always really been passionate about music and um and you know what I think music could do for people as right. as a as a tool to you know bring people together to make the world a better place. And so you know, let's just take a step back for a sec. So, what was your childhood like? I know that it says that you live in the UK, but you sound like you're from Canada. Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, in the suburbs. You know, both my parents worked. Uh, I was a bit of a a little shit is the best way to put it as a kid. So I got into a lot of, I, I did get into quite a lot of trouble. And honestly, it was kind of, you know, discovering music when I was like 11, 12 years old, because my family is not musical. There's okay. no background. No, there's my, my mom, my mom loves music, but um, she's not really very musical other than, you know, people feigning around a piano. <laughs> so there isn't really a, there isn't really, sorry, a story there, to, so to speak. So how were you more or less like this, uh, this badass in Toronto that was sort of acting out? I wasn't a badass, you know. I was lucky. I grew up in a fairly, you know, a pretty boring middle-class Jewish household. So my family, like all families, is, uh, has, has its challenges. Uh, so I think I rebelled against some of those challenges by, you know, doing stupid things, shoplifting and uh, causing problems and getting suspended and just being a shit. Like a bit of a uh, badass. Never, yeah, I've never been one to, you know, I've always kind of you know, done what I wanted to do in, in many regards as a kid. 
I probably shouldn't have at the time, but mm-hmm. it created a bit of an independence. So I'm very independent. I left home uh, when I was 18 and um, I haven't been back. And, you know, I'm, uh, so that's kind of where it comes from. And I did a lot of different jobs when I was in high school. So I worked at McDonald's for a little while. Uh, that didn't work. Um, and then when I got into music, I did a number of different things. So I worked at a music venue. I booked a venue as well. The same venue, I kind of moved my way up. Which venue um, is that? It doesn't exist anymore. It's uh, Shoppers Drug Mart now. But it's, okay. called, uh, it, it's called the Comfort Zone. Okay. It was a jam band venue, uh, Toronto's premier jam band venue at the time. I was a writer. I did some kind of music marketing. I handed out flyers outside of shows. Was all this around like 14, 15 years old? Started at 15. My first real job was in a record store called Sam the Record Man when I was 15. I know, I know uh, Sam Between the 15 and 18, I did all these different things. Okay. I played in bands. I booked all the shows. I, I, was, I did everything I possibly could. Um, so you were kind of like the manager of your own band, your own career at that point? It wasn't a career. Yeah, we were just a bunch of kids in high school. Uh, we weren't very good, but we played some shows around Toronto. And uh, I remember like we did an Angel Fire website. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, I'm old. All right. So, um, and then um, the, the long story, I went to university uh, in um, a place called Hamilton, which is outside of Toronto. And then I did a year, like an exchange program in the UK. And um, I had a girlfriend at the time. And I wanted to stay, but I couldn't. So I had to come back to Canada for a few months. I came back to Canada for six months to finish uh, my degree. And then the minute I could, I was back on a plane back to the UK. And then I got, I wasn't allowed to stay in the UK because of visa reasons. So I moved to the Netherlands and I lived in Holland for uh, two and a half years, something like that, two years. There were were no visa issues there? I did my master's. So I got into... uh, do a master's. And then from there, I moved back to the UK in 2007 on a kind of a working holiday visa. And now I'm, I've been here 13 years since then. So I'm a, uh, a permanent resident. So what did you do your master's in, in Holland? Was it music uh, related? Cultural analysis? No, it wasn't. Uh, at the University of Amsterdam. So I, it wasn't directly music related. No. But again, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was hustling there. So I was writing for the local English language newspaper. I was promoting shows. I was doing all sorts of, you know, when I was living in the north of England, when I went to my year abroad in Leeds, I was writing and putting on shows there as well. And so that always was a constant when I was studying. I was always working um, mainly to make money because I needed to, you know, right. pay rent putting on shows is usually a pretty good way if you know what you're doing to, to make a little bit of money at the very least try to break even. Right. It was very amateur, but at the time I have friends who are, you know, very well-respected promoters. I would never profess to call myself one, you know, the one thing, and, and as my career, I guess, developed, you just learn that you kind of have to get stuck in. That would be the recommendation I would give to anybody is, I, I did a lot of things without knowing what I was doing. I remember I had to pay a band $40,000 Canadian in cash um, one day when I was 16, counting the money. Because the, the club I worked at was not the most 
law abiding in some regards. Uh, so it, uh, so there was, there was one night where there was a quite a well-known artist and we had to pay them in $50 bills. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing it, but you realize you look back going, Hey, yeah, that was an interesting moment. That was a member of the Grateful Dead. It was not a, it was a big show. It wasn't yeah. me. It was involved. I was just some kid counting money. <laughs> While you were a student, did you hold down any internships or full-time work for any other companies other than just hustling on your own? Yeah. When I was in Amsterdam, I worked for a booking agency for, for a very, very short period of time, but mainly like I'm trained as a writer. That's what I went to my undergrad in. So I did a lot of writing. So that was kind of my part-time job. I reviewed a lot of records. I was actually the music editor of my local, of the local newspaper uh, in Hamilton, even though I lived in Amsterdam for a period of time, nice. reviewing records and doing previews of shows and stuff. Was um, that for the college that you went to? The it city? was like the city, the city entertainment newspaper. And then when I did my PhD, so when I moved to London, I, I had a real full-time job for a year and a half at a record label. Um, I was doing press for an, a big independent record label. Uh, so, and then I went back to school and I worked part-time throughout my PhD. I was the uh, music representative for the Canadian Independent Music Association in Europe. So I was like the music export guy. So I did that part-time. So I, it was more than part-time, but I was only legally allowed to work part-time when I was a student. So right. I ran hours a week. 20 hours a week. So yeah, I, uh, I did all the showcases uh, around Europe. You know, the South by Southwest equivalents, like The Great Escape and Reaper Bond and things like that. Right. And that's actually how I got to know, you know, a lot of people that I'm still very close with now by kind of being a freelance project manager for the uh, Independent Label Association in Canada. And then I picked up odd jobs from other record labels to help market uh, their artists in the UK and Europe. So I did some work for arts and crafts. I did some work for last gang for network for light organ, which was um, a label founded by the guy who discovered Nickelback, all sorts of others, just bits and bobs, putting on shows here and there. It all kind of cobbled together. And that was done with the support of the independent music association. And it aligned with my PhD. So it was all strategic. I was writing about Canada, working for Canada. So what made you want to pursue your PhD when you were already having so much exposure into music? Um, to be frank, it was actually the best way at the time to stay in the country legally. Obviously, you were a good student that you were able to get into different programs. Yeah, I got a full scholarship to do my master's. I've always been kind of academic, and, but I don't want to be an academic, uh, really, at least now. Right. So I, I thought that's a very, very long and boring story about my visa. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. It was just some paperwork issues at the time. Um, but um, it, it was the simplest solution to the problem. And, and I thought, you know, a PhD doesn't expire. I thought there was no harm in doing it. And I'm glad I did. I met a lot of people. You're given the benefit of the doubt a little bit more when, you, when, you're, when you're doing something like this. Right. And um, I just kind of built a little structure around myself. So I did my PhD in the mornings and I did the job in the afternoons kind of thing. Okay. And was it a lot of self-study and independent study? Like I studied in the UK for a semester abroad. I remember that there was a lot of independent study. But I went I was to the library around. once. That's it. I went to the British library once. 
okay. to dig up an enemy article from the 70s. I did the entire PhD uh, online. Wow. That's I had amazing. access to some pretty good archives through the Canadian government uh, through the job. So I, I knew people, I knew the research managers that I needed to know. So I had a lot of help. So, you know, you established many contacts globally in entertainment. What are some tactics for penetrating new markets? There's a couple things I've learned. Take it from Kendrick Lamar, be humble. So it is true. Um, you know, when you're asking someone for their time, you have to make sure that you honor that ask. For whatever reason, I feel like I've been very lucky that um, a lot of people have given me their time. I've always taken kind of an education first approach, at least in my head, you know, like assume nothing. That's my mantra with everything in life. So anytime you're in a place, it's infinitely more complicated than you think. And there's music everywhere. There's culture everywhere. There's passionate people everywhere. So I've found entering a new market is, is showing curiosity, being humble, asking questions. Don't assume that they'll like what you're offering because it may not make sense, you know? So I've traveled all over the world and I feel super lucky for that, especially now. And, um, I've seen places that I didn't even know existed when I was, you know, a 15 year old working in a record store selling Lion King soundtracks. So, you know, so that's, I, I feel like one of the things is, is that genuine curiosity and being humble and, you know, it's, it's cliche, but you have to do as much research as you can without thinking that you've done all your research. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes you sense. You can never do it. It's impossible. It's like, it's like learning about the cuisine of a food. You know, I'm obsessed with food like I am with music. And when someone says I don't like Chinese food, I'm like, well, what the heck does that mean? Right. Chinese food is one of the most complicated, intricate forms of, of cultural expression ever. It, music is the same. Um, and I feel that there are people, you know, anything has value if you understand where it comes from. Do you feel like you've had some sort of a decision in your career, like a, a step that, that sort of made you where you are in your career today? I don't think there's one. You know, what happened with us, so with Sound Diplomacy, you know, we work with cities around the world on music strategy and policy, and um, that didn't, uh, that's new in a way. So Sound Diplomacy wasn't created for that, uh, didn't exist when I created Sound Diplomacy, this concept of music cities, or, or very minimally existed. Mm. You know, Austin was a music city, Nashville's a music city. I get that, but the, the thinking about it as a, in policy didn't exist. A pivotal moment. So for three years with some friends of mine in the music industry, we went on a ski trip every January. And the last one, I think, was in 2018. And um, the first one that we went to, we had like a Chatham House Rules evening. There was about 20 of us. And that was kind of the moment that, you know, the ideas that I had and others as well, because I have partners who helped create this around Music Cities came to fruition. And there was a dinner uh, that I'll never forget where we were just talking about the value of music in cities and what it meant. And, and that was kind of the moment that it pivoted in our heads that we were going to really focus on this. Um, we called the, the trip was called Music Think Ski. It was like a, a private invite only ski trip. A friend of ours had a friend who owned a, a hotel in a beautiful village in Switzerland. And the local authority gave cheap, lift passes and stuff. So like I'm, that was a moment certainly. And, uh, you know, but the rest has just been slow and steady with sound diplomacy. It still boggles my mind that when we talk, people listen, I don't take that for granted. 
talking about music cities, you know, for our listeners, can you just share in, you know, in a couple sentences, what you define to be a music city or, or an emerging music city, for instance? Yeah. A music city is a city that treats music as policy intentionally and deliberately. So that means thinking about things, mapping things, measuring things. So Cities do it in many different ways, um, whether it's focusing on the nighttime economy or live music or education or tourism. But, uh, and a city doesn't have to do everything. Like any other piece of infrastructure, we call it. You know, like if there's a pothole in a road, there's a system in place so that that pothole gets filled. Like there's, the grit has to be somewhere and the person has to be trained and there has to be vans and so on and so forth. The government obviously yeah, has to invest. Be, yes, we believe there needs to be investment in one way or another. There's investment anyways now. We just don't see it often. Right. But I'm not saying that every city needs to put money into its artist's pockets. You know, that'd be a perfect world, but that's just not going to happen. It's about looking at music as an intentional strategy in a city to grow the city, to make the city fairer, to promote the city. That's what we would think of as a music city. So have you worked with any cities in particular where your guidance and your recommendations were actually put into place and you saw that an investment was wisely made in a music city? Yeah, we've done a lot of work in London. Uh, I am one small piece of a very big machine, but um, in London, we helped develop a a position now called the Night Czar or Nighttime Mayor, which a lot of people were involved in and and, uh, she's been incredibly influential in London and pushing policy. We've helped change property tax laws. Uh, We've changed the planning law in the UK to help protect music venues. We're doing something similar in uh, Huntsville, Alabama right now. We're part of a team building a new amphitheater. We set up a music board. The music board is a proper structure within um, city government that is advising the city. A couple new jobs have been created. You know, a lot of things that we do are behind the scenes. It's all based on process. And one of the things, if something doesn't exist in policy, then it doesn't exist. If there is no way to talk about music from a growth perspective, or cities all do what's called comprehensive strategic planning, i.e. they get down and figure out how are we going to use our land in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. If music isn't featured into it, and even in a little way, then it doesn't exist in policy, then it can't be strategized. So we do a lot of work behind the scenes to um, just get music written into things. What about if somebody did the opposite of what happened with with the venue that you used to work at where it was turned into a shopper's? What if they took like a CVS, somebody decided to buy a building that used to be a CVS and they, you know, with their own money wanted to open up a venue in a city that doesn't typically invest in music? Um, you know, we're all about the understanding of the val- the external value of music. And that's something that I think the music industry needs to be better at. We focus on the internal value of music, the value of music to ourselves, right. the value per stream, the value per gig. I'm not saying that's not important. Artists need to be paid more. Um, but we kind of ignore uh, the ubiquitous external value of music, the value of music to society, to our health, to our well-being, to education, to people. So I think that when, when someone is interested in putting a new piece of music infrastructure in a place, a venue or whatever, they have to think about that argument because that's the argument that we tend to make saying this venue is far more important than what happens in between these four walls. It's about 
creating a better city for all of us. And this venue plays a role in that. And you have to explain the economics, explain the cultural reasons behind it and the political reasons behind it. And it's like any other issue in that regard. How do you assess and determine if a city is an A-level, a B-level or, you know, a C-level market, or maybe, you know, can, can you walk us through an example where, you know, you've taken, I'd say something that's not an A or a B-level market and, and sort of shaped it so that it, it can have more more opportunity to thrive? I think Huntsville is a good example. Um, we've worked a lot in Northern Alabama, which has incredible music, incredible heritage, sort of Muscle Shoals is as well. You know, everyone knows Muscle Shoals. Right. But Huntsville itself as a city does not have a definable music heritage like Muscle Shoals. And it knows that. But there's incredible artists and incredible educators and, you know, and songwriters who live there, like there is everywhere. So we're working with the city to just be more intentional about how it works with music. We're doing the same thing in St. Augustine, Florida right now. Yeah, well, there's an amazing amphitheater there. There's loads of great songwriters working in Indianapolis, which, you know, is a big city and um, is known for sports, I would say, more than anything. But it's got an incredible music scene and heritage. We've been developing a, a strategy with the Chamber of Commerce and another number of other partners there. We're trying to get music-specific COVID-19 resources out in every place that we work because musicians qualify for relief, even if sometimes they don't think that they do. So we work everywhere. Any city, town can be a music city or town. It doesn't matter on the size. You have people, you have music. Just a kind of like a closing question. So what sort of opportunities are there or do you see on the horizon for people just starting out in entertainment, you know, in different kinds of markets? Like for instance, like if somebody grows up, like, like we said before, like a B or a C level market. Um, well, it's tough for everyone right now, obviously. Um, this is an unprecedented shock to the global economy. 30 million people being unemployed in America is insane um, and just heartbreaking. So, you know, I think that the only advice I can give is try to be specific with what you want and don't try to do everything. Just pick what you think makes the most sense for you and make as many friends as you can. But, you know, recessions are good times to start businesses, you know. Um, it could only get better? Yeah, either won't happen or it could only get better. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Harrison. All the best. So that's the interview. Just wanted to say thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. If we mentioned something you liked that stood out to you, or if you just learned something new, we want to hear about it. Please leave us a review on Apple or any of our other socials. Take care, stay safe, and have a wonderful day.